Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Bert Kritzer, who's the author of Judicial Selection in the State's Politics and the Struggle for Reform. This was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, I believe, um, and is a deep dive into the discussion and understanding of how we get state judges. Um, but I'm going to let Bert explain that to us. Welcome to the podcast, Bert, and please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this particular project. You are very well published, but this is your most recent book. So I am a faculty member at the University of Minnesota Law School, but I am not a lawyer. I'm a political scientist, taught for 30 years at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then had the opportunity to join a law school in the Twin Cities, and after a couple of years there, moved over to the University of Minnesota Law School. I've been working on research related to state judicial selection for a number of years. Uh, I had published another book a few years ago that looked at the patterns of judicial elections in state Supreme Courts post-World War II. And one of the things that became very apparent in working on that book was the frequency of changes in how judges, state judges are selected, state Supreme Court judges are selected. And that led me into the project that became the judicial selection in the states, which is a study of states changing how they select their judges since 1980. That is, I focus on the changes in struggles for change post-1980, albeit in discussing individual states, I often cover earlier efforts to make changes to how the judges in those states are selected. And as somebody, you know, who looks at, of course, the founding period as setting up the rubrics for Um, things that came later, one of the things you do point out is there wasn't necessarily a lot of clarity about doing this in the first place. Well, it certainly was left to the states as to how they would do it. This is part of the federal system. And individual states were free to determine how they would select judges. Initially, all states appointed judges, but early on, some states tried judicial elections and judicial elections rose to prominence in from about 1820 to 1860. And after that period, which, as you note, early on in the book comes with the sort of Jacksonian movement, um, then there are some switches and changes in how states decided to go about getting their judges. And again, this is not federal. These are not Article Three judges. These are all state judges. Well, there's some discussion in the literature as to what degree was the shift to elections 
a part of the Jacksonian popular democracy movement. And there's actually significant scholarship that argues that it was driven less by that and more by a desire to increase the independence of judges, independence from other political elites. Uh, the interesting challenge was that no one thought through how the candidates for judicial elections would in fact be chosen, which turns out in that period to be prior to primary elections to be done by the same political elites. And and so your, your focus in the book is obviously not on the Civil War period or even the post-Civil War period, but more or less the post-World War II period. Um, and specifically, the judge, the period you study is 1980 to 2018, I believe. Um, Correct. And so what was going on or what was the situation in the post-World War II period with regard to how states got their judges? Was there consistency or inconsistency in that? Well, there's lots of variation in how states were selecting judges. Uh, in many states, uh, particularly Northeast states, judges were appointed. Uh, they were not elected. Uh, in several states, two states in particular, no, three states at the time, some or all judges were elected by the state legislature. Uh, in other states, uh, they were selected through partisan elections where the judges are identified by party on the ballot, the candidates. In other states, they were selected by nonpartisan elections. A small number of states used what are best described as semi-partisan elections, where the parties nominated, but the candidates on the general election ballot appeared without party labels. And then at, as of the end of World War II, there was one state, Missouri, that had adopted a plan known there as the nonpartisan judicial selection plan, which uh, involved a system where a nominating commission forwarded potential candidates or forwarded a list of candidates to the governor. The governor then would appoint from that list, and the governor was limited to appointing from that list, a, an appointee would serve a relatively short period of time and then stand in a referendum-style election known as a retention election, where voters were asked whether or not the judge should continue in office for a full term. And then at the end of those full terms, the judge could again stand in a retention election, and if the voters said a majority in Missouri said yes, they would continue in office for another term. And this Missouri plan is one that you talk about throughout the book because other states adopted all or part of, of it um, as a means of getting their judges. Besides having these sort of various different formats of getting the judge with the nominating commission 
and the governor appointing from that and then having these retention elections. What is the idea behind the Missouri plan and these parts of it? Well, the idea behind it uh, arguably is to improve the quality of the judges. And in fact, the proponents of the plan uh, like to label it merit selection. Uh, The evidence as to whether or not the judges selected under the Missouri plan or its variants are in any sense better than judges selected in the other methods used in the US, there's there's a lack of support for that argument. but many people still believe it produces better judges. Uh, The retention election piece of it was in a sense a way of dealing with Americans' love affair with elections. That is, it left some role for the voters directly to have some say regarding who was serving as a judge. Uh, It allowed them to basically fire judges. It didn't allow them to select judges. And and so in terms of the the Missouri plan, the commission also is the sort of means of getting the merit or the the judges that have certain qualifications. And how many other states have decided to go in that direction? Boy, uh, can I give you a number off the top of my head? No. (laughs) What I can tell you is quite a few. Missouri adopted it around in the 1940s. Uh, The next state to adopt it was Kansas in 1958. And between 1960 and 1980, a number of states adopted it. Um, I could sort of spin off a list of the ones that I can think of, but I don't think that's needed. Uh, The last state to adopt it was Utah in 1985. Uh, At least the last state where the voters approved it was in Utah in 1985. Tennessee, the legislature, adopted it uh, for the state Supreme Court in the 1990s. So one of the points that your book is making is not only are there different ways of selecting judges, but that states have sort of changed things around at different points in different ways. Um, And that the data that you accumulate in the book is like these different sort of bubbles of activity around how judges are selected. Can you talk a little bit about what you found in terms of these sort of clusters of advocacy for change and also the fact that it didn't always happen? Well, let me answer, talk about the, the latter question first. So I look at all of the major efforts that were made to change selection systems starting about 1980. And a number of them that I look at in a number of states the efforts were not successful. There was an effort, for example, here in Minnesota after the white decision on uh, judicial election campaign limitations, Uh, but nothing came of that because the problems that people feared have not developed in Minnesota. 
Uh, a number of other states have also attempted uh, unsuccessfully to make changes over the period of time. And usually it, it's a combination of either lack of support or in some circumstances, uh, the nature of the system for adopting state constitutional amendments can make it more or less difficult to, to do so. Um, as for the clusters, so as I suggested, the, the, there was a cluster of changes to the Missouri plan between 1960 and 1980. Since 1980, uh, probably the most common, probably the most common change has been uh, to nonpartisan elections. Uh, several of those have happened in Southern states, uh, Georgia and Mississippi, border states, Kentucky, Florida uh, made such a change actually in the 1970s and then switched to a Missouri plan. Uh, more recently, there have been a number of efforts to move to a more political selection system. So there have been several efforts to end the at least the role of the nominating commission in states with a Missouri plan. It's been it's was done in Tennessee and for the Intermediate Court of Appeals in Kansas, but several other states have, there have been efforts that were unsuccessful. Um, uh, one state, North Carolina, that had adopted a Missouri, adopted a nonpartisan election system uh, in early 2000s for its state Supreme Court and other courts has now switched back to partisan elections. Ohio, which had long had a system of the semi-partisan type of judicial selection, uh, has now just within the last few weeks shifted to a pure partisan system for the appellate courts. Uh, what's one of the arguments I make in the book is that between 1980 and say 1999, the dates are a little fuzzy, that the efforts at change for changing judicial selection seem to be driven more often by what I call legal professionalism, good government kinds of norms. Some of those changes came as part of major overhauls of state constitutions, for example. That was definitely true in Georgia. Uh, but since 2000, it's been much more driven by partisan politics, policy kinds of concerns. So in North Carolina, both the shift initially to nonpartisan elections was driven politically, in that case by the Democrats, who were starting to lose control of politics in North Carolina and presumably thought that their Democratic judges would be more secure in a nonpartisan system. And once the Republicans took or felt they'd taken firm control, they shifted it back to partisan elections because they felt that they would have an advantage under partisan elections. And arguably the change in Ohio that's just occurred reflects the fact that Republicans think having the Republican label on the general election ballot will be to their advantage 
uh, particularly in light of the fact that they lost several state Supreme Court elections in the last couple of rounds. Um, and one of the, the points that you make also in the course of the book, because you do highlight some of the things that are going on in each of these states that you've been mentioning, is that the, the sort of process is more complex and subtle. I think those are the words that you use than um, one might sort of assume. Um, and it also doesn't necessarily apply across the board to state judges. It may just be the Supreme Court or the appellate courts or the trial courts or all of them, but that the shifts and changes are not necessarily sort of sweeping um, in, in, you know, radically remaking the way that judges, all judges in a state get their jobs. Is that correct? Well, in some states, it was sort of a radical overhaul. So, for example, in Georgia, virtually all judges went from partisan to nonpartisan. In North Carolina, it came in several stages, uh, initially as uh, in response to some litigation was brought because of uh, some interesting peculiarities of the North Carolina system for selecting the higher level trial court judges. Uh, But in other states, you know, there's been important differences between how changes were made for appellate judges, including state Supreme Court, and changes or lack thereof for trial courts. Uh, there, the, there's been a greater incidence of adopting a Missouri plan type system for appellate courts than for trial courts. And there are a number of situations in states where voters had approved a, uh, a Missouri plan system for the appellate courts and then were at a later point asked uh, to adopt such a system for trial courts, and they rejected it. In other situations, the legislature has not been willing to bring to the voters uh, proposals for uh, trial court. And, and in terms of sort of understanding these shifts and changes, as you say, there's a kind of move that happens around 2000 or fuzzily around there that is less about sort of how to get the best judges and more in a partisan direction. Um, And you also sort of contextualize this in the context of these kind of legal and democratic subcultures that are, are sort of part of what is being responded to by judges and by legislatures who may be changing the way that judges get their jobs. Can you explain about these subcultures and how they operate within the sort of state judicial system? Well, the, the idea of these subcultures comes from a book by Richard Richardson and Kim Vines from a long time ago. Uh, and Dick Richardson was my thesis advisor, so the arguments that he made in that book is something that that have stuck with me and have interested me. Uh, The the core argument uh, regarding the subcultures is, again, to what degree should courts be tied to the democratic norms and politics, broadly defined, i.e., to what degree 
Should judges at least be somewhat attentive to potential constituencies? To what degree should they take into account, at least in some ways, uh, the, the politics of the situation? The legal subculture argument is that judges should be independent, should be driven by the norms that are conveyed in legal education in terms of respect for precedent, uh, res- understanding the text of laws, etc. cetera. Uh, and they exist side by side. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as purely one or purely the other. Uh, but uh, it, it always struck me as kind of an interesting argument. And, you know, I started out a hypothesis that a lot of the changes would be driven by the political subculture. And in particular, uh, one of the things I was curious about is whether I would see in states where the political dominance was shifting, was there a move to shift the kind of system of judicial selection that would be advantageous to either the group that's going out of power, I try to hang on like in North Carolina, or the, the group that's coming into power, i.e. the Republicans later in North Carolina. Uh, and what I ultimately found is that that worked for some states, North Carolina being a good example, uh, but did not work in other states, Georgia being a very good example. I thought Georgia would be uh, a place where I'd see that. I thought Mississippi would be a place where I'd see that. Uh, in terms of unsuccessful efforts for change, I thought I might see it in a place like Texas. Uh, but no, that, I did not see that, nor did I see it in Florida. Uh, so what I what you know I found was a real mix of the two. And the interesting part was that the dominance of which one was sort of driving what was going on shifted uh, again around 1980. I'm sorry, around 2000. Um, and in part of the subculture also is this question that you pose as one of accountability um, to the constituents, the people of the community. And, and part of it is the role of independence. I mean, and in terms of understanding judges in the federal system, you know, obviously when I teach an intro American government class, we talk about the appointment for life and good behavior. Um, But that's not the case with regard to judges in the States. And so how does that independence work with this idea of accountability in the shifts that you've seen? Well, but that's obviously the tension between uh, involved in the selection of judges. There are uh, three states, I believe, now that have systems a little bit more like the federal system. Uh, the exception for two of the three is that there's a mandatory retirement age, so it's not life, but it's appointed uh, until mandatory retirement. New Jersey has a, a kind of unique system where judges are initially appointed for a seven-year term, and at the end of seven years, they can be reappointed or not, if they are reappointed, they then serve until mandatory retirement. It's kind of like a tenure system for academics. Uh, Only state that does that. Um, uh, So, and there's a lot of variation in what the states do. Delaware, there was a recent US Supreme Court case 
that the court ducked on standing grounds, which was a challenge to provisions that in Delaware, that the courts be roughly balanced in terms of the partisan makeup. So, you know, there's these, this tension between independence and accountability, which is the way it's regularly talked about, is, uh, is an ongoing one with courts you know, around the world. To what degree should there be accountability? To what degree? Uh, and then also the question is accountability to what or whom? Uh, and to what degree should there be judicial independence? And your book doesn't resolve this question. Um, I resolve the question. I get the Nobel Prize in political science. Because there isn't one. <laughs> but that being the case, you do take us through these three parts in the book in terms of not only the legal subculture side in part two, where you also talk about the role of modernization as part of what some states were pursuing in in sort of changing the way that the judges were selected. Can you explain what role modernization plays in all of this? Well, I mean, court modernization was a major movement um, mid-20th century, and it involved a lot of pieces. A lot of it had to do with reorganizing courts into more coherent structures where there were, may have been many, many different types of courts. Uh, there was a, what's referred to as court unification, where the, the courts were structured in a more systematic way. Uh, and part of that in some states was rethinking how judges should be selected. Should we, and by then there were uh, modern systems, both nonpartisan and Missouri plan. Uh, the states that shifted to nonpartisan, most of them at least briefly considered Missouri plan, but there was usually a concern that they would lack political popular support for that because it took elections out of the hands, took judicial selection out of the hands of the electorate, even though in practice uh, a large number of judges are appointed, even in election states. Uh, my the paper I'm writing at the present is looking at what percentage or the likelihood that judges, state Supreme Court judges in states where they are ostensibly elected are in fact initially appointed. Uh, and uh, uh, that's a paper that you know, I'm trying to get finished now. Uh, so the, the idea of modernization was simply arguably to make the courts better in, in broad sense. And making courts better seems reasonable. Um, but I also wanted to ask you in terms of the structure of the book itself, you go through part one as more partisan considerations. Part two sort of focuses on the legal subculture and this question of modernization. Um, and part three is broadly where um, the effort was joined but failed. Um, and and so in sort of setting out your research, I'm finding that you found some surprises as you were doing the research, like the anticipation that, you know, there would be these changes and then they didn't happen because of a variety of reasons. Can you talk about 
any parts of the book in general or specifically where you were surprised by what the research sort of brought forward? Um, I guess I would say I was surprised to a certain degree by what happened in North Carolina in particular, which was a rather bizarre set of uh, things that took place uh, over the last roughly decade. Uh, so the Democrats had switched to nonpartisan elections as they felt they were starting to lose some control. Uh, when the Republicans took control, uh, uh, I think 19, uh, 2014, I think, is when they won the election that took complete control. Um, the, they were concerned about maintaining control of the state Supreme Court. And so there was an election for state Supreme Court coming up in 2016. And the Republican legislature and governor uh, tried to shift that election from a nonpartisan election to a retention election, i.e. a referendum on whether or not the one incumbent would be retained in office. Uh, The state that was challenged and it was struck down by a three judge trial court because it was a constitutional challenge under the state constitution. All three judges who uh, struck it down actually had Republican backgrounds, which was kind of intriguing. It was appealed to the state Supreme Court the justice involved recused himself. The court tied three Republicans and three Democrats. And so the trial court decision stood and it became a, a Democratic, it became a contested and unpartisan election. But uh, uh, they, it goes beyond that, okay? So the Republicans also were trying to facilitate Republican control of the intermediate appellate court in North Carolina. And to do that, they passed a law that the first law made the listing of party identification of a candidates in the intermediate court of appeals election would be listed on the ballot. Uh, But they also then made a change that the candidates of the party of the governor would be listed first on the ballot, okay? So the Republican candidates would be listed first and the Democrat and other party candidates would follow. The election comes along and the Democratic candidate for state Supreme Court wins. I hypothesize, I have no, you know, I only can speculate on this, that the reason that the Republic, the Democratic candidate won was that for the Supreme Court election, the, the ballot position was determined by lot and the Democratic candidate was listed first. So I speculate that at least enough voters assumed that the first listed candidate was the Republican that the Democrat, who was in fact the first listed candidate, won that election. So by 
manipulating the Court of Appeals election, the Republican-controlled legislature and governor set up the victory of the Democratic candidate. Two years later, let, let me finish this. Two years later, the Republicans decided to not have primary elections for the state Supreme Court. And, you know, any candidate that got enough petition would run. There was a Republican incumbent, again, up for uh, election. I think it was an incumbent. And the Republicans speculated that there would be multiple Democratic candidates on the ballot and just the one Republican. But at the last minute, a second Republican got on the ballot and split the Republican vote and the Democrat won. And so in in the North Carolina case, there's a lot of sort of mushing around what was going on to try to advantage the Republican candidates um, by the Republican legislature and the Republican governor, I assume. Um, but in the in the in the end, it didn't work. Right. Because of how they tried to do it. Uh, so you know, is, is there another example where such an such a sort of pursuit was taken and it worked better for the people involved? Um, well, we will get to see in Ohio, okay, uh, where they have now shifted fully partisan, whether or not the Republican candidates for the appellate courts will be more successful. The Republicans had pretty extensive control of the courts, and they still technically may have control of the state Supreme Court. I forget what the split is, uh, but they've been losing ground. And so it will be interesting to see what happens, you know, in 2022. I don't know how many candidates or how many justices are up in Ohio at that point. See, see what transpires. I should note that it's not just the Republicans that play this game. Uh, the Democrats in Ohio, early in the uh, 20, I think back around 2010, filed a lawsuit attempting to argue that uh, it was a violation of uh, freedom of association, denying the listing of, given that candidates were being nominated by the parties, that they were being not being listed by with party labels on the general election ballot. The Democrat, at that point, the Democrats were being more successful in the state elections. And so they were trying to, to try to advance their advantage. That case was unsuccessful. Um, they did not succeed in, in making that, that, getting the courts to strike down uh, that provision of Ohio law. In your research for this- also that generally, you know, and this is something that I'm seeing in the new study on litigation over judicial selection, is that generally efforts to strike down how how states are selecting judges have been unsuccessful. Uh, the the one kind of exception was again a, a situation in North Carolina where they were nominating judges by district for a trial court, but electing them statewide, which meant that there could be a Republican 
you know, North Carolina politically has long had sort of regions and some regions were more Republican, some were more Democrat going back a long time. But the system basically denied the ability of Republicans to elect judges of the higher trial court in North Carolina. And litigation was brought on that matter. And I wanted to ask a broader regional question in terms of what the data also indicated. Is there a difference in regions of the country with regard to how they operate and how they think about um, judges and the selection or election of judges? Did you find regional distinctions? Well, historically, there have been regional distinctions. So historically, uh, the states that uh, came into the the country early, the Northeast, uh, have retained appointive systems. Um, You know, I'm thinking of, of the original 13 states. I think the only two that were using popular elections were Pennsylvania, and Georgia. All of the others use some kind of elite selection. Uh, Virginia and South Carolina, legislative appointment. One of the New England state, I think it was Rhode Island, was using legislative uh, election for the state Supreme Court, but not for the trial courts. Uh, at least with regard, New York actually did have, it was New York did have judicial elections for its appellate courts. It still has it for its trial courts, but it is the only state in modern times that has ended any form of popular election for any of the major courts. And so in the 1970s, they ended uh, elections, popular elections for the uh, appellate courts in New York, but it's unique in that regard. Uh, Other areas of the country, the South, uh, was long held on to partisan elections and still uh, several of the states using partisan elections are in the South. Uh, though recently Arkansas shifted but shifted from partisan to nonpartisan. Um, though the Midwest and West has been a mix of, for a long time, a mix of Missouri plan and nonpartisan elections, uh, exception in terms of nonpartisan elections uh, currently would be New Mexico. Um, and the only state west of the Mississippi that does not use elections in any way is Hawaii. And what is unique about Hawaii's process? It's well, Hawaii has a, a system of uh, of appointment and reappointment. Uh, It's not unique compared to some states and other states. Uh, Just it's unique in being the only state west of the Mississippi that does not and has never used popular elections of any type. And so in terms of how you went around about sort of pulling all of this together, your book includes data and interviews, um, or the interviews are part of the data. Um, How did you design the kind of 
sort of methodology to get this information? Well, I'd say the dominant methodology was looking through newspapers, uh, using newspapers as sources. Uh, in the case of several states, there were key players who I was able to make contact with. So, for example, Georgia, where the system was part of a larger constitutional overhaul. Uh, I was the, the man who was essentially the executive director of that was available, uh, as was at least one other person. Uh, and so I was able to make contact with him and talk to him, although he he pointed me, it turned out that the, many of the documents from that commission were available electronically. So I was able to access some of those. Uh, similarly, it was something was similar in Utah, I believe where there was a good source. Some of the people I talked to were political scientists who'd been around at the, the due law and courts who'd been around at the time. Um, so I, I, uh, when I couldn't find something or when I thought I might be able to get some additional information, you know, I would try to figure out somebody to contact. Yeah, as I was reading through, I think the preface and I saw your listing of the people, I was wondering in certain senses who everybody was. <laughs> Right. Uh, and I thought I, I thought I listed their affiliation. You did list affiliation. And then there were people who had didn't have affiliations. And so those were the ones that I was sort of like, who are yeah, they? Yeah, you know, let's see who those are. Um, yeah, I don't remember. You know, I have to look at the intro and see who those are, the preface. Uh, but I mean, I was I was fascinated by the sort of particular stories of some of the states like Utah that you talk about. And like Mississippi, because they didn't do exactly what I thought that they would be doing. Well, that was certainly true of Mississippi to me. You know, it was, albeit, you know, there was some issues that were brought under the Civil Rights. There was some litigation brought under the Civil Rights Act, but that dealt more with the trial courts than it did with uh, the state Supreme Court. And I, you, you already mentioned that you're working on a paper that is somewhat connected to this, but are you working on another book that sort of extends this research? Well, again, the project on litigation over ju judicial selection, uh, I've had research assistants for the last, what, 18 months working their way through the states, uh, trying to locate litigation related to judicial selection and preparing memos, uh, and there's only one state left to finish uh, as of now, which is good because the research assistant who's doing it is going off to the military at the end of the summer, having finished her JD. Um, and, you know, a part of, I, I have sort of in my mind a potential outline for a book, and I actually started an intro chapter early early in the summer, late in the spring, but then I've gotten diverted by the, another paper, again, related. I mentioned that uh, the frequency of appointment rather than selection. And so I've spent a lot of time over the last month working on that. Well, I hope when the next book comes out, you'll come on the New Books Network and talk to me about it. We can continue the oh, conversation. Um. I want to thank Herbert Kritzer for joining me today um, to talk about judicial selection in the states, politics, and the struggle for reform, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. 
I assume one can purchase this at Cambridge University Press's website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence you would like to give a shout out to? Not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been in a brick and, a brick and mortar store for a while. Um, so no, we'll, nothing we'll comes just, to We'll just send people to Cambridge University Press's website then. Thank you Sounds so much good. for joining me today, Bert. It's been a pleasure.